Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Paul, really great to be able to catch up with you again. I feel like it's been a long time, but time is time has a different meaning these days. So anyway, uh, great to see you. Thanks for doing this with me. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Great to see you as well. Thank you. Um, I, I think that our viewers should understand that um, you have a couple different roles. You are the chief investment officer. Um, you have macro commentary, and then you also focus on the healthcare fund, the healthcare ETF that you have, which is, um, I think, really interesting to a lot of people. And you know, part of, of course, healthcare right now is is thinking about the uh, biotech and pharmaceutical companies of the world, which we'll get to in a second. But just from a top-down perspective, as the CIO. What are you and your team thinking about as it relates to the new variant and maybe more coming? So obviously the, the biggest concern as we, we start to feel a little bit more normal um, is, you know, what, what does this next variant cause? What, what are the implications? And, you know, we hear a lot of different statistics from various studies on vaccinations, what's working, what's not. And to, we, we've done some fairly uh, big deep dives into the Delta in particular, but looking at what are the real implications of, of those that are vaccinated? What are current hospitalizations looking like? Uh, and I, I guess without delving into all the, the minutia of the data, I, I think what we can comfortably say is, you know, we don't want to keep our eye off this because it's very real. Uh, but the tail risk of it, it having that sort of structural impact to to society again, I think is very, very low. And so when we start to, even though in Canada it feels a little bit, the data also shows what we kind of feel here is when you look at the U.S., things look like they're open. That's because they are. And so the data that we look at also indicate that uh, the things have very much reopened uh, and that the Delta, although it is capturing a lot of media attention right now, hasn't flowed through into some of the shorter term indicators that we look at, really gauging sentiment of, uh, uh, of people and their propensity to be out and doing, uh, whether, whether it's out shopping or whether it's out uh, traveling, um, which is in a particular interest area for us. Hmm. Okay, so we'll get to that in a, in a moment. Uh, but so what I'm hearing from you is that, and you know, I've been in the states as well, and you know, people there are just there. I think done with being locked up, and they are carrying on, and that's kind of what I'm hearing from you. I think the question, though, for a lot of people is, is that the right decision? Um, and you know, from a pharmaceutical biotech perspective, um, if you're vaccinated, what are you seeing and hearing as it relates to getting uh, the Delta? So when we hear things like um, the, the viral load is 1,200 times more, even in those that are vaccinated, one can't sit back and think, wow, that's, that's scary. Um, but when you actually start to look at the hospitalizations, um, and one of the calls we were on uh, just over the past week, uh, the, the doctor was indicating that about nine out of 10 of those that were, were showing up in hospitals 
were unvaccinated. And when we break out that other 10%, uh, a significant proportion was from the Johnson, uh, were vaccinated with Johnson & Johnson, which we know now needs a, uh, needs a booster. And yeah. so we know that, we know that the, that you can still catch uh, COVID and, and have the Delta, uh, but it does seem like it is very much um, mild symptoms or asymptomatic and hospitalizations in particular and deaths um, for those that have the vaccinated is, is very low. So when we, when we kind of put that all together, uh, you know, I, I still think that and believe that the risk of, you know, any potential future shutdowns or any anything that even remotely looks like what we had in March of this year or March in uh, 2020, um, the, that's very low probability. And I think that actually has some positive implications for for uh, the market, for the recovery. But in the midst of this, when you hear scary statistics like that, that that I just mentioned, or you see, you know, charts indicating that cases are increasing, um, you know, that they can tend to be, you know, more intraday or day over day volatility. But the data that we're looking at uh, does not match what we're seeing from some of that commentary. Hmm. The data doesn't match what the headlines are. So, that's correct. Yes. So, so when we start to look at things, um, various, uh, we like to look at travel because that's again, as I mentioned, we have, we have a particular interest in that area, um, but also areas like when we think about restaurant bookings, uh, which is actually a, no, nobody's ever come to me and said, "Hey, what, what what statistic in the last pandemic did you use to measure the propensity of people's sentiment coming out of it?" And so, one of the areas that we thought would be interesting is. Um, is looking at the restaurant bookings, which we can track weekly uh, by every major city uh, in most parts of the world. And a bit of a proxy on, on human sentiment, if you will, to actually be out. And mm -hmm. so we absolutely see the week over week not changing there. Um, it's weekly variations, but no significant rollover um, caused by the variant and, or sorry, caused by Delta. Uh, and we also see that with various types of other travel statistics, whether it's airline uh, passenger uh, passenger uh, travel, uh, whether it's the hotel, the revenue per available room, those types of statistics are all still very much uh, indicating that the recovery is intact. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, a lot of uh, points to pick up on, I guess, uh, First of all, when you mentioned, well, this is, I mean, it's really quite fascinating that the people who are getting the Delta variant, 90% uh, are unvaxxed, and then the other 10% probably has J&J, &J, just to recap that. It, it, it's, uh, yeah, so, so that would be for the hospitalizations, and it's hospitalizations. Not, uh, not the entire 10%. Uh, it was more of an indication that the, the the bulk of those that are vaccinated are coming in with the Johnson and Johnson, and that's hospitalizations, not necessarily contracting the the virus. Where we still see some mild symptoms, or uh, people are are also asymptomatic, symptomatic and testing. Positive. Okay, I mean that should give people who have had you know who are double vaxxed some some confidence, and probably more confidence than they're currently showing in terms of getting out and about, or at least here in Canada. I, I think so. One of the uh, it's quite interesting. We looked at the airlines and um, and comparing again, trying to measure Canada, and we can see it with the, that open table data that I was suggesting before across metropolitan cities in, in Canada uh, versus those in the U.S. But also when we looked at the airlines and just a simple 
I, I recognize an analyst will 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 point their finger and say that's not a forecast. It's simply a, multiplying second quarter revenues by by four to give a perspective on where we are relative to 2019. Uh, and in the U.S., uh, they're about 65 to 70 percent of where they were in in 2019. And mm -hmm. so in Canada, Canada it's sub 20 percent. So again, oh, wow. you know, we're perhaps we're perhaps a little bit later getting started, we were a little bit later getting getting our full vaccines as well. So, uh, but we can see it also in through in through uh, May, June, July, uh, the those uh, bookings that I was referring to uh, in restaurants have increased significantly. So we're starting, I think, starting to get a little bit more like what we've seen in the US. And so where does that leave you? I'm kind of jumping into the investment side of it now, but where, where does that leave you then in terms of your investment outlook and really where you want to be positioned? So, so I think there's there's two areas. Um, when we look at investments, we want to look at medium longer term growth dynamics. And so I, I, I bring up the travel area because pre-pandemic, this is an area that was capturing a significant amount of growth above market. Uh, baby boomers were, were really coming into their retirement years uh, and travel expenditures were significantly uh, increased because of that, really from 2005 all the way through to 2019. So we think having exposure to that travel area, there's an opportunity. You do have to withstand some of the volatility in and around the day-over-day -day headlines. But when we look out 18 to 24 months, uh, we do see the uh, see that particular areas having uh, having solid growth and resuming that trend that was pre-pandemic. But the other area, and you mentioned this at the, at the start, I, I co-cover our healthcare, and this area has seen some very very positive macro backdrops because of of the pandemic. And really, one of the drivers for that sector pre-pandemic was sentiment. And it was very easy for politicians to simply put up the political lightning rod and and point at the pharmaceutical companies. Yet these companies have pivoted massive resources and really shifted, uh, you know, shifted the our, our lives or transitioned our lives from what was, you know, full lockdowns to something that's resembling more normal. And that they did that in in unprecedented time. So I think. The perception of our of the pharmaceutical companies has changed significantly. I also think the propensity for politicians to to be pointing fingers at them uh, at the same time uh, has changed. Coupled with the macro backdrop, of course, of uh, of a new president that has more centrist policies. So when I put that on one side of healthcare and I balance it with other areas like uh, medical devices, which had shot, were shut down as well. That's an area of reopening that we we're currently seeing in the first quarter and follow through to the second quarter, um, really sort of exceeding expectations as elective surgeries have come back. So it's an area that's still, you know, markets trading at 20 plus times forward earnings. Uh, this particular area trades at a discount, but yet has visible growth at a time when some of the areas perhaps in the, the next 12 months don't have uh, the same type of visibility. So we very much like healthcare as well. Hmm. And so just to pick up on a couple of points there, it, it was interesting when you take a look at the pharmaceutical companies, you know, you have, almost have to get your head out of our COVID world right now and remember um, how much finger pointing there was at the pharmaceutical companies in terms of what they charge for drugs. I mean, that, that was a conversation we were having for a number of years. Um, obviously, that's on the sidelines right now, but, but because of that, correct me if I'm wrong, but because of that, there really, there wasn't a lot of movement in those stocks, and there certainly wasn't a lot of institutional interest in them from a money flow perspective, and so they didn't do anything, and now they are. 
Absolutely, and we can see it. Uh, it's it's really come back down to fundamentals as opposed to more concerns about the the, the macro political environment. There's there's proposals. There's always uh, proposals within healthcare, um, but as I mentioned, uh, the Biden administration administration tends to be more centrist in their policies. So the proposals that are out there for any type of reform are very very uh, modest and so have very limited implications across the sector. So uh, you hit the nail on the head that I think that the the overall sector has become more investable. Uh, from an institutional perspective as well, and so we're seeing that flowing into these uh, into these companies. Of course, the vaccine, you know, benefit for some of the companies, in particular Pfizer, um, that that we think will be ultimately transitory. We will need some boosters, we think, over time, um, and it really comes down to uh, these types of uh, valuations on, say, a Pfizer. What? Uh, how do they redeploy that capital or the, that excess cash flow that they have now, and how do they re redeploy that for future growth? So there are certain pockets that uh, that we like a little bit more. We we do like medical devices here, uh, managed care. We think perhaps they're uh, like I said on the Pfizer, for example. Uh, perhaps there might be a little bit of uh, uh, over expectations in the uh, in the shorter term on on the the long term benefits of, uh, of vaccine boosters. And for some of the pharmaceutical companies going back 15 years ago, I mean, the stocks also always moved or were interested or not interested from an investor perspective based on uh, what their product pipeline looked like. And of course, patent cliffs. What's the latest there in terms of what that even looks like and how relevant it is in the discussion of owning pharmaceutical companies? So great, great question. Uh, and so these companies do need to be reinvesting. Actually, one of our favorite metrics that we like to look at uh, is R&D to sales. Uh, and so that, and that, that's one of the metrics. We look at other types of productivity of, uh, of their R&D, but we wanna see companies that are reinvesting uh, in research and development. So when we came through that major patent cliff, call it in the 2014 to 2016 area uh, or time frame, we saw the companies, they really need to reinvent and, and really reinvest for growth. And so we've seen it actually, it's quite interesting to see a number of the larger companies, and I mentioned Pfizer, but Novartis was one of, uh, did this also, and, and several other companies have done it, which is they've, they've really, they've spun out their non, non-growth assets, their, their kind of long life assets into other public companies or have sold them off, and so that they can become much more focused in on uh, in on their R&D and their pipeline. So uh, a long answer of saying that always is a, a key for our companies. We really don't see anything 2025 across our pharmaceuticals and large, this on the large cap side uh, and large cap biotech. Uh, we don't really see any major, major patents coming off uh, other than uh, say a company like an AbbVie, which we know when these patents are coming, uh, as well well telegraphed into the market. And a company like AbbVie has just done a fantastic job. Um, for those that don't know, uh, they have Humira, which is uh, nearly a $20 billion a year drug. They've been reinvesting that across multiple other areas uh, and therapeutic areas and really have built out a much more diversified business. And kind of that, I think that that's a, a, a textbook case of management really executing well. And I don't think it's been... Uh, been accounted for in the market when you have something that has 10% growth and trading at a nine times multiple. Um, I think the, the, the concerns are a bit overdone on that particular pattern, but that's really the only one that we see. That's 2022, 23, uh, and we don't really see anything else out until 2025, 26. So at least for the next few years, no major 
patent cliffs like uh, like what we saw in that 14 to 16 period. Hmm. Okay. Um, and when you think about the med tech companies, um, and you know they are, are always interesting to take a look at when you're coming out of an economic downturn or a COVID-related uh, pandemic, um, because people now can go back and get more of the elective surgery. So I'm just kind of wondering though, who's kind of best positioned because some of them, and I haven't really looked at them much over the past number of years, quite frankly, but um, you know, some are specialists obviously in knees, uh, knee replacements or, or hip replacements. What, what's, what's the area of uh, medical equipment that you even want to have exposure to? Uh, I guess the answer is yes, and that means all of it. <laughs> oh, really? I, I really think that I think I, I, I look at a company like a Boston Scientific, which is very heavy in cardiovascular rated, uh, related equipment. Um, you know, we see great growth uh, in that particular company and very well executed. I, I guess if I were to have to pick one, though, I, I would have to say Stryker. Uh, is one that we we really like. Of course, they have. Uh, I always joke that uh, if you go into a surgery, they have. Uh, uh, you see a drill on the side. It's not a Dewalt. It's it's uh, you know that's likely a, a striker drill. But of course, they have the the um, uh, all of the equipment associated with with surgeries. If you've been into a, a stretcher and an ambulance, it's striker. But their growth comes from robotic surgery. Uh, they've made a number of acquisitions. They've got, uh, uh, and I, this isn't uh, this isn't a robot coming in and and have, doing the surgery. It's ro robotic assisted surgery. So you still have a surgeon, um, just uh, with their Mako system, uh, becomes much more uh, efficient and effective. Uh, in particular, on hips and knees, they've made some acquisitions into uh, uh, other areas in in the ankle and shoulder, and so that's an area that we think does have. A, if we look at kind of a five-year plus time frame, they are the leader in robotic surgery and uh, robotic-assisted surgery. So I think that's a great, uh, nice balance with sort of their traditional business, uh, but the growth really coming from uh, from the robotic surgery. And what's uh, what's reflected in the stock price right now? So it's it's been fairly volatile. You end up uh, the the valuations are a little bit up on uh, I shouldn't say up. You tend to pay a little bit more in the medical uh, devices companies uh, for the growth um, that, that is there. Not dissimilar that you see in uh, in technology companies that you do have a little bit higher multiple. However, what we've seen with uh, with Stryker and with Boston Scientific is they tend to also be fairly uh, volatile in and around kind of that reopening and the discussions around around uh, Delta in particular over the uh, over the past few weeks but but also Q1 they gave indications that you know things are starting to recover that elective surgeries are coming back and that was validated with with you know really solid Q2 numbers up guidance for uh, for the rest of the year so fundamentally they're seeing the recovery happen uh, in their businesses, but there's still that uncertainty around Delta. And of course, um, you know, are we going to see elective surgeries um, slow down again? And that really has caused uh, caused a little bit more volatility in the shorter term. So um, we see any of that type of volatility as as opportunities to uh, to be adding to that particular area. Interesting. Um, how does the robotics though compare to Intuitive Surgical, which is a company I actually. You know, when I worked at Deutsche Bank, um, we covered, Deutsche Bank tended to cover some of the smaller cap companies back in the day, in part because of the uh, merger with Alex Brown so long ago. Um, so, you know, I was introduced to Intuitive Surgical really like long before it became a mid or large cap company. So it's been a fascinating growth stock to watch. 
Um, I don't know if you have views on that stock and or how it compares to um, to Stryker's robotics. And so, so a great question, great point, and uh, a blast of uh, blast of the memory as well from the, those uh, those days. Um, and so, absolutely, they they've been uh, also a leader in robotic surgery with uh, Intuitive. I don't have the multiples in front of me, but I want to say you're paying almost double the valuation on an Intuitive versus something like Striker. That would be my preference. A little bit lower. Uh, lower multiple, um, you have a not even a little, you have a much more diversified business base as well um, in, uh, in a striker, as I was mentioning, you've got all the other traditional business lines. So uh, perhaps not as much growth, but when I look at the, uh, uh, when I look at the multiples, like I said, I don't have it in front of me, but I, yeah. I wanna say it was double that of, uh, of what a striker was last time I, uh, last time I looked, which was uh, about a week or so ago. So I, I'd, pr I'd rather have something a little bit more diversified uh, and perhaps uh, a little bit less torque, uh, because uh, as we know, when the growth doesn't show up, um, that uh, that torque can go the other way sometimes too. So we prefer yeah. a little bit more diversified business line. Fair point. Um, what about um, uh, in the um, dental area? Invisalign is a company, again, that I've looked at for years. Uh, and it, it had been a great stock performer. Then, of course, Smile Direct came in and kind of caused some question marks in terms of whether or not, you know, it it would dent or take uh, take uh, sales away. What, what's your view there? Uh, to be honest, uh, I don't really have one. A line really is, hasn't been a name that I've covered. So. Uh, as opposed as opposed to coming up with it with an answer that uh, that doesn't no. make sense I, I haven't covered the, the the dental market as much as sort of traditional uh tra traditional medical devices yeah no that that's fair it's kind of people either follow invisalign uh or or align line technologies or kind of not um but i do think in your yeah. fund and correct me if i'm wrong but do you own thermo scientific thermo fisher scientific we do we do we owe we own thermo and recently uh recently added to our agilent um and so we we like that tools and diagnostics uh businesses uh we think that uh not not just from of course there's a little bit of a covid uh bump but also from uh increased r d across across business across the um uh, by large cap biotechs, mid cap, small cap biotechs. We think that that flows through into uh, into the tools and diagnostics areas. Which is, is um, Thermo's main business. It's just kind of usables, reusables, correct? That's a proportion. I don't have the exact proportion off the top of my head. Uh, they do have reusables, but then of course, if you go into a lab uh, and you look uh, look at the, the actual lab equipment itself, um, will quite often be be thermo thermoscientific, and of course, um, that's not just uh, that's not just pharmaceutical labs, um, but that there also is some uh, some academic research that's associated with uh, with healthcare as well. Um, so they they would have the the recurring revenue uh, is really on the reusable side uh, versus you know when you all of the lab equipment associated with. Uh, with diagnostics um, is also uh, thermoscientific. And, and Paul, when we talk about your healthcare fund, um, explain to me, and it's interesting because these are high quality, large cap names that you guys seem to have an interest in buying, correct? 
That's right. So, so we've got a very narrow universe of companies that we look at. And so uh, we have a minimum, uh, minimum 5 billion market cap. Uh, we've never gone under 10 billion. We really want to own the large dominant uh, companies in a broad diversified portfolio of, uh, of healthcare companies. And so that ranges from, uh, we haven't talked about managed care, which is insurance like, um, through to the medical devices, pharmaceuticals, and large-cap biotechnology companies. So we have 20. We're equally weighted, and uh, we we go through each quarter, and uh, we run very various uh, quantitative metrics. So we, we're very uh, very much uh, numerically driven, but we also, when you peel back the the layer of our portfolio, we want to make sure that we're not overexposed to any one particular area, whether that's pharma or medtech, but also peeling back the, the pharma in particular, we want to make sure that we're not overly exposed to any one particular indication or, or one particular therapeutic area. So we want to have a diversified portfolio of large healthcare companies. That's uh, in, a, in a simple way. Right. And, um, but income producing as well. So when I looked on your fun fact, um, it, it shows that the dividend is, is 1.75, but the yield is 8.17. Can you explain that? That's right. So we have what's called the covered call strategy. And so the covered calls are really, we forego a little bit of the upside on the underlying stocks. We sell call options on the underlying positions. It's up to 33%. Uh, on any one position. And that's not just a random number. It's learned over a long period of time that that still gives us two thirds of the upside at all times. So meaning we'll, we'll always have 67% of the, the upside on our individual positions. Uh, but every month we, we collect cash flow from selling these call options on up to a third. It's quite often uh, closer to 25%. Uh, and so what that allows us to do is, again, uh, it's a quid pro quo of getting cash flow monthly versus foregoing a little bit of the upside on the stocks. And that allows us to pay out that additional cash flow. And because the taxation of the, the covered calls is considered capital gains, that also allows that cash flow to be uh, quite tax efficient for, uh, for unit holders as well. Sorry, can you explain that last part again? Why is this efficient? To write so, call? so a, so normally a dividend would be if it's if it's a US dividend that would be considered a foreign income and so the cover the the taxation of the way that we do it um, is considered a capital gain oh. and so when we pay out that distribution it's not just an 8.1% uh, income stream it's a proportion of of income and a small proportion from the dividend income and then uh, a proportion from capital gain so just adds a little bit to the tax efficiency of that distribution and again um, the quid pro quo is is that you don't have the full upside on the underlying positions uh, and so when we talk about uh, hhl and healthcare leaders we really try to point people in that if you're looking for healthcare and monthly cash flows that's really where healthcare exposure and monthly cash flow that's where healthcare leaders comes in uh, if you're just looking for um, cheap beta to the sector then there's probably other alternatives for you but that's really that's really interesting so the cash flow um on this fund is an eight percent yield is that right that's that's right that's right and so you know, you know monthly month 
uh, 8% per annum paid out monthly. Um, and so, uh, and uh, so to, to peel back the layer a little bit on that, each month we go through uh, and we, we look at our portfolio uh, with a fixed distribution and we say, how much on each individual name, do how much covered calls do I have to write in order to gen generate the net after withholding tax, after fee cash flow for that particular month. And I don't want to overly complicate um, the strategy, but each month it's not the same. So different things give us more premiums or cash flow each month. So typically during an earning season period, we have higher volatility expected. So we end up generating more cash flow during that time. Healthcare is very unique though, in the sense that we're always tracking what are the pipelines looking like? What are the catalysts coming down from drug trials? What are the, what are the industry conferences that are coming? Because each one of those will tell us why we're getting paid a certain type of premium on a particular stock. And it, it's sometimes not even it's the, that particular stock's um, premium or, or, or catalyst. It's a it's a competitor, and a, you know I just I think of Eli Lilly recently with uh, with Biogen, which we don't own. We own Eli Lilly. Biogen had a an Alzheimer's um, regulatory event that was expected to be a very big market moving event for them. Eli Lilly has a similar similar type of drug, which will flow through. The market knows this and. That allows us to actually go out and say, oh, that's why I'm getting a very big premium this particular month. Uh, and so we do that every month and uh, we go through and, and determine how much we have to write based on, based on the, uh, the live market at the time. Mm -hmm. um, no, I'm, I'm glad we talked about it because I think that's something that, you know, investors, um, you know, it's difficult to do uh, definitely on your own because you, you actually have to have a real understanding of, of what's going on on the company fundamentals and of course the competitors as you just described to, to be able to capture that premium when you write covered calls. Um, I was, uh, I actually wrote some covered calls on Moderna um, and, and because it was more volatile and, you know, kind of a, you know, a pure play COVID wise, uh, you know, the premiums were very good and are very good. But of course, the upside in the stock far surpassed anybody's expectations. But but I but I only did it to your point on a portion of of the holding. So I guess it's okay. So. Yeah, <laughs> I can I can certainly empathize. Uh, some people uh, when they they think of volatility, that's we actually like when we see that we we get paid more on uh, on our uh, on our options when things are volatile. Yeah, yeah, you definitely do, and it's it is a nice way to generate cash flow. Period. For sure. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting and great strategy. Um, why don't we just kind of close here, wrap it up and, and maybe just provide some, some parting thoughts, um, you know, as it relates to being the CIO of a firm. Um, and, you know, I don't know, maybe we see a correction between now and year end, but perhaps as we look into 2022, what, uh, what investors need to need to think about. It's a, I could, uh, talk on a few different angles, <laughs> but, I, but I really kind of bring it back, Catherine, to, you know, when we look at what's happened, you know, the, we, we've come through a pandemic, you know, we, we've come through the recession, a huge amount of liquidity has been put into the system. You know, we saw a lot of market rotations earlier this year, you know, growth to value, momentum to, um, momentum to large cap, and there was a lot of moving parts. And, and when, when we look back at that retrospective, to me, it was a bit of a, a mid-cycle 
uh, rotation. And so I think that's where we are right now. We're, we're in the mid-cycle. We're sensitive to changes in the day-over-day um, media, if you will, from uh, from COVID, but not realizing that there is a low tail risk that uh, that, it, that it does have a, a systemic impact. But I think that's a very low risk. And when I look out kind of the next 12 to 18 months, you know, we've been growing into earnings. We think that that's going to be the case. The, the actual economic system and uh, the, the, the recovery that we've seen, we think is very much intact. Could we see a 5% pullback? Should, could we see 10%? Absolutely. You see any of these sort of um, uh, catalysts or tail risks, you know, really taking hold, you could see that. But I, I firmly believe that when we look out 18 months from now or even 12 months from now, that in aggregate, there's there's great opportunities. And like we're talking about on the options, any any of that type of volatility should be used as opportunity, and so um, try not to be try not to be scared. We we like being invested. We're invested in our funds, uh, and so uh, you know with the macro macro clouds that come in and go out, um, you know really focusing on on just owning good quality good quality businesses that are in areas that have structurally positive backdrops. And I think we touched on two of those, which is healthcare and. Uh, kind of in that travel-related uh, recovery as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, Paul, we will leave it there. That was great catching up with you. A lot of uh, great information, insights, thoughts for our viewers. So thank you.